We start with my first guest this morning, Andrew Weaver, former leader of the BC Green Party. Uh, lots to talk to uh, with him about this morning, including the COP26 climate change conference underway in Glasgow, Scotland. BC's new climate change plan just updated, Clean BC. Very pleased to welcome him back. Andrew, thanks for coming on. A pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, so we're at COP26 now in Glasgow. How many COP conferences uh, did you go to? I went to zero, and um, oh. I have, I, I've, been, I've been involved as a climate scientist since before COP1 even started, right? That, right. Uh, and, you know, uh, the whole United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change started in 1992. Uh, so I, I haven't, because for a number of reasons. One, um, I, I've, I've always I mean, been involved, very involved with the IPCC, which is the science arm of developing the background for uh, policy deliberations. I, I didn't know what role I in personally would play at the COP because a lot of the negotiations happen in behind closed doors, and I uh, didn't believe that uh, my voice was needed there because they, okay. in the lead-up to it, already did it. Let's talk about what's going on in Glasgow. Let me play a clip here for you, Andrew, of UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson and his opening remarks uh, to the conference, and here's what he had to say. It's one minute to midnight on that doomsday clock, and we need to act now. If we don't get serious about climate change today, it will be too late for our children to do so tomorrow. Okay, do you agree with him there and his analysis, and especially the metaphor he used there that the doomsday clock is ticking and we're one minute to midnight here? Uh, do you agree with that? Well, here's the thing, Mike. As you know, he wanted, I know you want a yes or no answer, but as you know, I've been working in this field since the 1980s. Uh, I do, have never liked the notion of trying to fear people into action because you, you end up polarizing society. What happens is you have those who react uh, with, with panic and you have those that uh, their reaction to, to words like that are one to hunker down and just ignore a problem and pretend it doesn't exist. Uh, it is a very, very serious problem, climate change. It's, uh, I don't know that language and, and metaphors of doomsday, doomsday clocks, etc. are helpful. Uh, it's very uh. clear that um, we're on track for some significant change, and we need to deal with it now. And it's really important, and there are people out there who are, and I'm really pleased to see that Canada is actually playing an international leadership role now, uh, which is quite exciting to be a Canadian. Okay, well, I want to ask you about uh, Justin Trudeau's comments here at COP26, but I take your point there about some of the... Um I don't, shall we say, kind of apocalyptic language that's thrown around now and then, and whether that might turn people off. Like, did you did you see the United Nations uh, video they produced that had a a, a dinosaur? I that did. was yeah. So this was a, a cart. Well, basically, it was a computer generated dinosaur talking to the United Nations. They hired Jack Black, the great actor, to be the voice of the dinosaur. And uh, so this is what the dinosaur had to say. And then I'll get your thoughts on it. This is a United Nations public service announcement here. Listen up, people. You're headed for a climate disaster. And yet every year, governments spend hundreds of billions of public funds on fossil fuel subsidies. Imagine if we had spent hundreds of billions per year subsidizing giant meteors. That's what you're doing right now. Okay, and he goes on to talk about the potential for, you know, an extinction-level event for humanity. I mean, is there any science to show that, that, you know, human beings are facing some kind of calamitous extinction if we don't deal with this? Well, the, the extinction include we're we're in the midst of what is called the sixth great extinction event, and that is because of us. 
but that is largely the biodiversity on our planet. The rate of extinction of, of species on planet Earth right now is unparalleled in, in recent uh, human history. And it's on, on par with the other great uh, extinction events on Earth. Is that going to involve humans? I, I don't think so. But, but the, the issue here is I, I don't want to belittle the seriousness of this problem. But what I right. do, but the problem is, again, we've been talking about this for 30 years. It does not mean that we have to, by tomorrow, wake up and we have to solve it. It's not doesn't work that way. Uh, there, there's there's a sense of urgency in dealing with it. I agree. We need to put in place policy measures now because they they manifest themselves in the years to come. But it does not, in my view, help to actually alienate and uh, people by by putting the fear of God of them because that's just paralyzed people. The most empowering thing about global warming is that it is is the single greatest opportunity humanity has ever been faced with to. For, for innovation and creativity and prosperity because we have to transform our energy systems from polluting to non-polluting. So the voice of the dinosaur, I actually agree with. It makes no sense that we are subsidizing polluting in- industries and increasing subsidies in some cases while at the same time uh, climate change is ongoing. It's, it's essentially, you know, it's like subsidizing a heroin addiction. You just don't want to do that. You, the role of governments is to regulate markets, to ensure that markets are uh, internalized the externalities associated with doing business, and uh, to uh, have the betterment of society in mind. Okay. And, and so let's get on with it. Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, Canada at COP26 in Scotland right now, and Justin Trudeau is there. And Trudeau yesterday had this to say about a carbon tax and, and global carbon pricing. Of course, we have a carbon tax here in Canada, and he is uh, calling for other countries to adopt carbon pricing so that Canada is not effectively going it alone and at a disadvantage. I thought it was interesting what he said. Here's Justin Trudeau speaking on that point yesterday, then I'll get your thoughts. One of the things I think we all know needs to come out of COP is a clearer call uh, to create a global standard around putting a price on pollution. Not only will that encourage innovation, give that clear price signal uh, to the private sector uh, that making the right capital investments to transform to lower emissions makes sense, but it also ensures that those who are leading on pricing pollution don't get unfairly penalized. Andrew Weaver, do you agree with him there? <laughs> that could have been me uh, yeah. saying that. That's, I've been saying exactly that for a couple of decades. Uh, I agree. <laughs> 100% agree. And it's, it's really interesting to listen to that because it, that signaling is very clear. Look who the environment minister is now. It's uh, uh, somebody who has a long, rich history of, of working on this file from a pressuring government to action kind of point of view. Trudeau's clearly going to leave his legacy as being as <clears throat> to be the prime minister who has dealt with this issue in Canada and reclaimed our rightful place as international leaders on this file. The only other thing that we really need to start talking about, and for the first time I actually heard it in this COP, was the issue of population, uh, because ultimately that is the elephant in the room. When people like to criticize B.C. for emissions growth, and it's true, emissions have grown in B.C., but they haven't grown on a per capita basis. Our population has grown dramatically. And this is the, uh, the elephant in the room. Is, and, and, and the uh, United Nations came out and started talking about the importance of um, providing free birth control and, and, and other resources in, in parts of the world. So, so we, we, we're having conversations that have been too uncomfortable to have before and that is another very positive sign well population control wow that talk about a challenging issue i mean i i guess china tried to deal with it with a one-child policy at one point but you know how do you i mean besides free birth control what else can you do about population control i I, I don't know i'm not uh 
this is where you need to <laughs> you need to have really uh, smart people working on very complex issues, delving into faith-based belief systems, the role of women in societies in in parts of the world, and on and on. It's a very very difficult issue, but it's not one that I think humans are not up to taking the challenge to to address. It's uh, you know we have and and the the notion that what the UNS what the uh, UN was calling for. That actually is helpful because we know when we raise people out of poverty, when we raise the status of women in our societies, when we, when we, when we have more fair and equitable societies, we know population growth maintains it, is, is more stable. We look at okay. countries like Japan or Eastern or, or Europe where population is not growing. In Japan's case, it's dropping. Uh, because okay. Of the, yeah. All right, welcome back. Continuing my conversation with Andrew Weaver, former leader of the BC Green Party. We played that clip, Andrew, of Justin Trudeau at the COP26 conference in Glasgow calling for more countries to adopt uh, carbon pricing. As I understand it, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's only about 20% of global emissions in the world right now are covered by some kind of carbon tax or carbon pricing so there's a long way to go right and like i don't think there's a, a national there's no national carbon tax in the united states i don't think there's one in china i mean how realistic is it for other countries to do what canada's doing and bring in this carbon pricing so that that's uh, I, uh he's right uh in terms of calling for this and he's also right and we i also saw our new environment minister talk about the, the notion of what canada can do if this doesn't happen and I think it's quite exciting to see Canada talking about this as the EU has, and that is, has already, that is the notion of uh, border tariff adjustments. So why that's important is what, what happens in that case is if Canada and other jurisdictions covering, say, as you, 20% of the world emissions with pricing, most of Europe has pricing and many other countries do too, if they start to develop trade uh, 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 issues where they are able to put a carbon tax on their border for incoming uh, ex- imports from jurisdictions that don't have a carbon tax, right. then that will create a level playing field. Those are called border tax adjustments. So Trudeau's talking about that. Other jurisdictions are talking about that. The problem here is that we're having all these negotiations going on in Glasgow with the, under the United Nations Framework Convention of Climate Change. And then in other rooms, in other places, in other times, we have a whole bunch of negotiations going with the World Trade Organization. They really need to be talking together because, you know, the last thing that we can have to deal with is, is have a countries, you know, say, the, say 50% of the world goes all in on reducing emissions and puts border tariff, tariff adjustments on. If we start having the other 50% of the world taking the, the first 50% to, to uh, international court because of anti, anti-dumping tariffs that they're claiming are being put on left, right, and center, we're just in a big mess. So we do need international agreement, and I'm really pleased to see uh, uh, Trudeau uh, trying to broker a leadership role in that. And it's clear to me that uh, that is signaling to Canada, to the world, that his legacy is going to be one of Canada reclaiming our rightful place you, as international leaders, leaders on the climate file. Let me ask you about some of the criticism that you've taken from some in the environmental movement who are unhappy to see you supporting the Trudeau plan because, you know, they bought a pipeline, the federal government bought a pipeline, so why are you, why are you backing Trudeau? You've also supported the B.C. climate change plan brought down by the Horgan government, and people are calling you a sellout for that. Um <laughs> Let me ask you about this comment you made about the, the target to reduce global emissions to that 1.5 degree yeah. target that we, we want to get back. We, we want to cap emissions at 1.5 degree global warming above pre-industrial levels. And you said, you quote, you said on Twitter the other day, 1.5 degrees is not attainable and it never has been. 
Yeah, and you got a ton of backlash from the environmental movement saying you, what, you're a sellout now. How do you respond to that? I said that the day that, that the day that report came out and people were calling for this, it was not possible. And let we, it's, what's really important, Mike, is that we understand the history of where that 1.5 came from. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, when it does reports, are tasked by, by nations, member states, in doing reports. They don't just do reports for the sake of it. So the UN member states tasked the scientific community to write a report to tell them how they could get to keep warming to one and a half degrees. So you can, scientists can rise to any challenge they've been asked to rise to, and they did write that report. And the report says, yes, you can get to 1.5 degrees if you were to use these hypothetical emissions pathways, which require incredible negative emissions, not pot- that are such that, for example, it's about five gigatons of emissions that we have to have in a negative form that suck out of the atmosphere here in order to reduce the carbon dioxide concentration by one part per million. Not only do we have to reduce the 10 today, but another five negative emissions with technologies that don't actually... So you're just saying it's not possible. So, why, you, so why even talk about it? Well, right? I don't... Well, yeah, I don't know why, because, well, I can tell you what's going to happen. And this is my biggest concern. And, I've, and as you know, Mike, I've been working in this field for decades, is there is an entire generation of youth out there. And I and I think, you know, some people say, oh, they should fight for this. Yeah, okay, you can fight for this. And I've been fighting for this for 20 years. But I know that what's going to happen is that eight years left or whatever is going to come and go. We're going to we're going to beat past the timeline, and then there's going to be a sense of despondency entering that we it's too late. It's never too late, too late because there's nothing magical about 1.5. What's the difference between 1.49 and 1.51? Who knows? That's within the error bars. Uh, there's 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 no scientific reason to pick a temperature over another. Even people who talk about the two degree warming, if you ask the question, where did that actually originally come from? Well, it came from EU deliberations back in the early 1990s, where at the time somebody thought that the, uh, if we, the world warmed by, um, uh, if we doubled atmospheric carbon dioxide levels, the world would warm by two degrees. It was just pulled out of the air. So again, it's not to say okay. that that's not important to, to keep warming down, but it's, that it's getting hung up on numbers like that is less important than getting hung up on the fact that all the solutions are there, all the technologies are there, our human ingenuity and capacity is there to deal with this, so let's get on with it. Okay. Let's stop fighting about it. Let's just deal with it. And we can. And think when you have leaders uh, like we have in BC and Canada now who actually put in place some of the most progressive climate reduction, emissions reduction plans on the planet, it's about time we support them in delivering into these rather than... Thank you, Andrew. Yeah. Thank you, Andrew. Got to leave it there. We're out of time, but I want to thank you for your time today. Thank you for coming on. Always a pleasure. Thanks a lot. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the new stealth speed radar in the city of Surrey now. Do you drive in Surrey? Do you have a lead foot? Do you ever drive maybe even a, a bit over the speed limit, which a lot of people will occasionally do? Well, if you're in Surrey, you better watch out. Because the cops have got some souped-up radar in Surrey now. This has been deployed by the Surrey RCMP, and it's called the Black Cat Radar. Ooh, the Black Cat is coming to get you in the city of Surrey. So check this out. They set this thing up, this Black Cat Radar system, on 104th Avenue in Surrey in the uh, 12,500 block there. That is a 30-kilometer-an-hour zone. That's a pretty low speed limit there in that stretch of 104 in Surrey. And guess what they found? Guess how many speeders they caught there? 2,000. 
2,000 excessive speeders on that part of 104th Avenue in Surrey with this black cat radar. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Kyla Lee, criminal defense lawyer at Acumen Law. She specializes in driving law. Hi, Kyla. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, I love the names they come up with here, the black cat radar. It's kind of like, you know, it's, it's like a cat kind of prowling. It's on the prowl to get you. So it's yeah, kind of like... You don't like, want black cats across your path. No, exactly, especially at this time of year. So black cat radar. Now, the way this works is this is kind of... Um, the, the police are saying that this is what they call it is a leveraging tool. And they set this thing up and it measures speed patterns on, on certain streets and it tells the police where there's a lot of speeding going on, right? Like, that's the way it works, right? This thing is not giving out tickets. It's measuring It's measuring high-speed districts in the city, correct? For now, yes, it's not giving out tickets. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm cynical about the future, but, um, you know, right now they're essentially gathering data about where people might be committing a large number of speeding offenses to inform the police about where they should be targeting their enforcement. Right, so let me play a clip here for you, Kyla, from Constable Sarbjeet Sangha from Surrey RCMP uh, in conversation with uh, Jill Bennett here. And here she is describing this black cat radar system they have in Surrey, and she's stressing here that this is not photo radar. Have a listen here. It does not take any picture to any images, and it does not record any license plates either. It is specific for numbers of vehicle on that uh, particular part of the of the road, and it collects so number of vehicle and speeds of those vehicle and particular time of the day. Okay, so it counts the number of vehicles that are going by. It measures their speed, and it records the time of day when the speeding is occurring. So I, I don't think you have to go in too far of a leap of logic here to figure out what's what's happening here with this with this instrument, Kyla. Like this is this is basically where the police can figure out where to catch the most speeders, right? Exactly, and they can put it up. They don't have to have anyone standing at the roadside. They can put it up. They can gather data. They can go, oh, people here love to speed, and then a couple of weeks later, they're going to have an officer positioned there, uh, standing with speed, handing out ticket after ticket. It's essentially like a spot camera for police so that they can do future enforcement. Yeah, I was thinking it's kind of like uh, like a fish finder when you go out fishing uh, and you have a, an electronic fish finder that's looking for the fish, and then you know where to put your hook down. So it's kind of a, a, an instrument for the police to figure out where's the best fishing hole to catch the most speeders. Yeah, you say? You know, I come from a long I come from a long family of fishermen, and uh, a lot of people view fish finders as kind of like cheating. <laughs> For me, the police are, are kind of cheating by using this. I don't like to be. How is it, how is this uh, how is this cheating? Well, you're, you're essentially delegating the work of a police officer to an electronic device. You're assuming that the information that the police are getting on this is accurate, even though nobody's making a contemporaneous visual estimate of the speeds. And you're not notifying the public that this is there, right? Part of the reason that speed is effective when officers pull people over and keep the tickets is that other people see that the enforcement is happening. They know it's taking place in that area, and they adjust their behavior accordingly. You know, I don't go down Marine Drive at 70 kilometers an hour because I've seen enough people pulled over there that I know the police are always conducting speed enforcement, and I'm going to travel the speed limit. 
Okay, I'm getting, I'm getting, you're breaking up a little bit on your cell signal there, uh, Kyle. I don't know if you can step a little closer to a window or something. Maybe, might, maybe that might improve it. Let me play uh, another clip here for you from Constable Sanga from the Surrey RCMP about this black cat radar system they've deployed there and how they use the data that's collected. Have a listen. So we deploy our resources from the community response unit. Our members will be out on the road and uh, they will catch those speeders. And we had one actually yesterday. Uh, This person was driving 109 kilometers per hour in this area. So this person's vehicle was impounded and they were issued fines under the uh, uh, criminal code and the traffic. Okay, 109 clicks an hour, my goodness. And don't forget, they had set that up in an area where the speed limit was 30 kilometers an hour. Kyla, what kind of penalty are you looking at for going 109 in a 30 zone? Well, that's uh, what the Supreme Court of Canada has characterized as dangerous driving. Uh, and you could end up with a criminal charge, a one-year driving prohibition, a criminal record, um, 10 points on your license, and potentially fines as well. Okay. Uh, is that an easy rap to beat? I mean, if the police have got you nailed, maybe they've used another radar uh, radar equipment to catch this uh, this driver later. Is that something? I mean, you're a specialist in in fighting these tickets. I mean, if they catch you going 109, your your goose is cooked, is it not? I mean, at 109 and in a 30 kilometer an hour zone, yes, because it's so obvious. You don't need to be trained in speed enforcement to see that somebody is well in excess of the speed limit and that that driving behavior is, is absolutely dangerous. Yeah, is your concern here? Like, I thought it was interesting that they set this thing up in a 30 kilometer an hour zone. Uh, you know, I mean, I think you're bound to catch a ton of speeders in, in an area like that. Is, is this, uh, is this about public safety or is it about generating revenue? Like if the police can use this thing to figure out where are the best fishing holes here, where are we going to catch the most speeders? And like, oh, look at this. There's a lot of people going over 30 kilometers an hour on this street and no kidding. And then we can just set up there and write ticket after ticket after ticket. Is that, I mean, do you think that is a progressive thing for public safety or is that just a a money grab? I don't think it's a progressive thing for public safety, particularly when you have people in the area not seemingly making complaints about frequent speeders or not, you know, not alerting the police to an issue and the police responding to it. Um, We also know that there are many speed limits that are artificially low. um, And so a 30 kilometer an hour speed limit might not make sense. And that data might, you know, might suggest that the speed limit is too low for the way that traffic can flow safely on the roadway. If they're not seeing high numbers of accidents and not getting public complaints, this seems to me to be more of a fishing expedition to find the best profitable place to generate revenue for the city. Although although they they have said that if there are residents of Surrey who are worried about dangerous speeding in their neighborhood, that they can phone the Surrey RCMP and request that they come out with this black cat radar to check it out and see if there is a lot of excessive speeding going on there. And maybe then if there is, then the police would redeploy their resources accordingly and catch them. So, so they are, they are saying, so they are saying that, you know, people, they can respond to complaints from citizens. And I would be more supportive if it was done exclusively to respond to complaints from citizens or to deal with situations where there's a lot of crashes and they're trying to investigate whether speeding is a particular problem on that roadway. But when it appears to be places that the police are just not enforcing and trying to figure out whether there's a good fishing hole for speeders there, that to me goes too far. 
All right, welcome back to the show. We're talking speeding, especially in the city of Surrey, where the RCMP have deployed the Black Cat radar to identify high speed zones. My guest is Kyla Lee. Phone lines open 604 280 9898, star 9898 on your cell. Sandra in Surrey. Hi, Sandra. Good morning. Um, just really simply, I have no trouble with the, um, with the speed traps. What I do have a small problem is they changed the speed on that road uh, about a year and a half ago. It took oh. them forever to change all the signage. And, you know, it's a main thoroughfare. So this piece feels a little bit more around a cash grab. And oh. in the interest of public safety, it would be way smarter for them to be putting uh, more resources on some of the more residential streets in the area, school zones and that sort of thing, because that's where you're getting the people speeding. But to just to just do this at the bottom of a hill where it yeah. where you're going to catch people coming down the hill, I have a little bit of a problem with that. Yeah, yeah. Are you talking about 104 Avenue in Surrey, right? Yes. So, okay. What was the speed limit there before? 50. 50. And they dropped it to 30. Dropped it to 30. Oh. And... And, and again, it took forever because during COVID, it took a great long time to put all the signage in. And so they, it was just an extra layer of catching people um, on this stretch of road. And there's, a, and there's a big hill there too, right? Yes. yes. Yeah. Well, no wonder they catch 2,000 speeders there. And that's all. Right. Public safety, put them, put them in the school zones and, and get some of those other speeders off the road would be awesome. Right. Okay. Thank you for the call. Yeah. I mean, if you change the speed limit, Kyla, you set up a speed trap right at the bottom of a hill, drop it down to a 30 kilometer an hour speed zone. I mean, man, you talk about a speed trap. What do you think? I mean, that to me, it smells of a cash grab. That's the type of situation that makes the public upset because it's, it, it inherently seems unfair. And, and she's right. You know, put the enforcement in places where public safety is primary, like school zones, residential neighborhoods, where there's been a lot of complaints. That would make it seem more like it's achieving the purpose they're saying it's for. Let's go to Bill on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Bill. Hey, Bill, go ahead. Yeah, going from... Um Burnaby to Vancouver on Marine Drive. In Burnaby, it's 80 kilometers. Once you cross Boundary Road, it turns to 50. So I yeah. took it to court, and the police officers never showed up, and therefore I got that ticket dropped. Oh. And uh, it, it is a bit of a catch grab because it's just a matter of informing the public. And, and if you take it to court, uh, the police officer most times don't show up. What were okay? So that's lucky for you. The police officer didn't show up. What were you going to tell the judge if the cop did show up? Um, well, I asked to, when I got pulled over. I wasn't going to speed limit because I it just transitioned into a, a different uh, residential area, I guess, because it just developed yeah. in that area. And there was a photo uh, gun over a bridge that was going over the highway. Then three blocks later. Uh, the guy pulled me over. Okay. So I was just going to tell the judge I was going to speed limit, but maybe when I was crossing boundary, I didn't uh, reduce my speed fast enough. So I was just going to tell him the truth, and whatever happened, happened. Okay, Bill, thank you for the call. Well, Kyla, I guess a lot of people may get... I remember getting a speeding ticket in this precise circumstance once as well. I just, you know, you transition into a lower speed zone, and bam, cop is right there. But, I mean, I don't know if you can beat that rap. I mean, if you're speeding, you're speeding, are you not? 
Um, well, there's lots of ways to beat it, especially because there are flaws um, in uh, the sort of maintenance and operation of lots of the laser and radar devices. There's certain tests that have to be done. The officer has to be able to articulate those correctly. I've succeeded in lots of speeding tickets by challenging the measurement of the speed, the manner in which the officer did it. Let's go to Linda on the line in North Delta. Hi. Hi there. Um, I just wondered, uh, you're talking about cash grabs, like where does that money go? Does it not go into new policing vehicles and every time they have an accident? Isn't a cash grab could be a good thing? Kyla. Uh, the money gets sort of split between the province and the municipality, and then the municipality will allocate the funds. But lots of it does ultimately end up going back to policing because the police have such a massive budget out of any uh, municipal government budget. So, you know, while there are certainly laudable things the money could be spent on, we've spent a lot of time in the last 18 months talking about defunding the police. And if the money's going to police, maybe that's not a good place for it to go. Okay, well, but it's not it's not officially earmarked though, right? Like when you get a speeding ticket, no. it's not like the money has to legally go to public safety or something. It goes into general revenue. It does. It goes right? into general revenue yeah. and then it gets split around all these different pots. Sure. Let's go to Ryan on the line in Surrey. Hey, Ryan. Hey, good morning. Uh, I could probably say a few different points on this, but I'll stick to just a couple. One, I'll admit that I'm a speeder from time to time, uh, even though I know I shouldn't at these times. So if you're caught speeding... You're doing wrong. You should be caught. And I hear Kyla saying, you know, this is a cash grab. Well, that does support the fact that they're looking for high-density speeding areas. But would that not therefore prove it is in best interest of public safety then to hit those areas? It's saving operational costs because you're not deploying a bunch of cops into a bunch of areas. Right, but okay. I mean, this is... Five Thank you, Ryan, for the call. And I guess this is the argument, Kyla, that the police are making, that they're using this technology to identify areas where there is a lot of speeding going on. It's a public safety hazard, and they're responding accordingly. But again, you know, if there's not a large number of crashes and a large number of public complaints about those areas, it raises the question for me about whether the speed limit itself needs to be reviewed. If if lots of cars are traveling at 50 in a 30 zone and doing so safely, is 30 the appropriate speed for that road? Probably not. Right, right. That's a really good point. Thank you for coming on today, Kyla. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Hey, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about that old growth logging plan announced yesterday by the B.C. government. Man, oh man, talk about a controversial plan here. Uh, the B.C. Council of Forest Industries, one of the largest industry groups in the province, sounding the alarm over this plan here yesterday to defer old growth logging on 2.6 million hectares of forest land. Uh, There's a consultation process here with First Nations very significantly, but the industry sounding the alarm bells here saying this could result in 18,000 job losses if this plan goes through. Have a listen to this now. This is Katrine Conroy, BC's forest minister, uh, talking about how BC loves its forests. Have a listen. These forests, these giant, ancient, majestic old-growth trees are part of who we are in British Columbia. Thousands of us work in the forests, enjoy exploring the forests, or live in or near the forests. However, we are in challenging times. Together, we're facing a climate change crisis that's brought drought, unprecedented heat, and an incredibly challenging wildfire season. We saw too many of our communities and too much of our forests impacted. As British Columbians, we cherish our forests. 
And people have been clear. They want us to take a different approach on forestry. Okay, that's BC Forest Minister Katrine Conroy yesterday. Let's discuss now what a great panel we've got for you, both sides of it. Bill Dumont is a professional forester. He's a former chief forester with a major BC company, former member of the BC Forest Practices Board. Bill, thanks for coming on again. Good morning, Mike, and thanks for having me today. Thank you for being here. Also on the line is Tegan Hansen, forest campaigner with Stand.Earth, and we've reached her today in Glasgow, Scotland, where she's at the COP26 conference. Tegan, thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, thank you to both of you for being here. Tegan, let me go to you first. What do you think of this uh, this announcement from the government yesterday? Your group has been campaigning for a long time uh, to stop logging in these old-growth forests. Does this plan go far enough for you? You know, I think it's an encouraging sign to see the provincial government really clearly accepting the science on this, um, showing that they have an intention to follow their scientific panel on deferring uh, harvest in these at-risk old growth forests. That being said, these forests are still open to logging today, and deferrals were meant to be a first step. These are a temporary measure to buy space for the necessary negotiations to happen. Um, and we would have, you know, been celebrating this step a year ago, potentially a little more than we are today. Um, we'll celebrate when we see deferrals on the ground. Right. So when you when you say that there's logging potentially going on there today, so it's not like they're stopping logging in, in these lands Im- immediately. These are areas that are have been designated for possible deferrals down the road, correct? Exactly. What they did yesterday was they released the findings of their technical panel, which shows Um, which areas are at high risk of irreversible biodiversity loss, and saying that they want to defer harvest in those areas, but they have not actually moved forward, with the exception of future sales of uh, BC timber sales. Okay, Uh, Tegan Hansen says uh, she's encouraged by the plan. Bill Dumont, what do you think? Well, good morning, Tegan. Um, uh, It's a pretty uh, devastating and poorly thought out plan, and it's going to severely damage the forest sector, First Nations, and rural communities. Like, uh, we don't know the exact impacts. It depends on what the percent of the 2.6 million. By the way, for for listeners, that's more than half of Vancouver Island in in area, and it covers the whole province. Uh, Just look at the map in this uh, biased report that these so-called activists uh, prepared and the government acted on. Um, there's, there's some big concerns. Uh, for example, one of the major forest companies in B.C., their shares lost 10% today. So the economic wow. impacts of this announcement are, are already huge. But I think one of the, the great things, and shows how poorly thought out this thing, they have called for the immediate cancellation of B.C. timber sales auctions for any old-growth sales. And I can bet you, that the hawks in the U.S. uh, lumber industry will be on the case immediately with a countervail because these auctions are the basis for setting the price of timber in B.C. uh, that are paid by everybody that isn't subject to auction. Why... Why do you call it a biased report? This was an independent scientific panel. The government said they set up to guide them on this, but why do you call it biased? Look, it was dominated by activists. The NDP has completely capitulated to the Ferry Creek protesters and their desires. This was an advocacy 
These are the activists that claim we only had 3% of our old growth left in B.C. The truth is there's more than a third of the old growth is still left in B.C., and that's after 150 years of logging. Okay, Tegan, so, Tegan what do you say to that? I mean, it's, it's interesting to hear because this report actually does not go far enough for most folks who are environmentally minded in B.C. and who want to see um, and into old growth logging. And actually, the folks on the panel are foresters and ecologists who are following the recommendations from uh, the Old Growth Strategic Review, which included a lot of input from industry and from uh, nations and forest communities. So certainly not a biased report. It's, it's very much based on the science and the facts of what is happening on the ground. Uh, and that being said, you know, we... I, I agree, like looking at BC timber sales, it shouldn't have just been focused on BC timber sales. All of those 2.6 million hectares of old growth should have been deferred um, already. And so to call it a, you know, a biased approach, I think undermines where we need to go in this space. We need to go uh, forward together with solutions. And also just one other point, it's interesting to hear um, about the devastating impacts of protection when, the reality is we've lost about half of the forestry jobs in this province over the last two decades uh, without these protection measures, but because of bad management uh, and because of, you know, bad industrial practices. And that is, this is meant to be the first step in solving those issues and actually creating a, a just and sustainable future okay. where forest communities aren't worried about whether or not they're going to exist in a few years. Bill, Bill Dumont. Much of the job loss that we've seen in the forest sector is directly attributable to the same actions by these same environmental groups in the 1990s when there were huge areas of timber removed from the productive land base and put into the parks and other areas. And I'm not opposed to that having occurred. It, in fact, put BC as a global leader in terms of the amount of timber that is reserved from harvest, especially old forest. But this report that I just read through last night and this morning, it's anti-industry, it's anti-community, it's anti-First Nations, it ignores the 10,000 years of, of occupation of these lands long before any of us Europeans showed up here, and the idea that hundreds of thousands of First Nations people who lived and worked and sustained themselves by these forests it didn't have any impact on it. When, when you say, Bill, when you say it's anti-First Nations, I mean, the government yesterday described a, a process where they're going to consult with all the First Nations on BC, of B, on BC on this plan before it goes forward. How is that, like, anti-First Nation? Like, I, spoke, I, I spoke with three First Nations since this announcement came out yesterday, and they said the first they had seen any of these maps, and I, I advised them, don't trust those maps. These maps were done by activists. There is a, really a questioned basis on what, what they have done because they've, they've introduced some new terms in forestry in B.C. that we've never heard before. And, uh, and these uh, activists have come up with technical terms that they sort of purport have some forestry basis, but they're ecologically fantasy, some of them. They're, okay, they're let just me... ridiculous. They're, they're emotive words to, to generate a kind of forestry by public opinion, not science or sound forestry. Let me go back to Tegan, Tegan Hansen from Stand.Earth. Go ahead, Tegan. Yeah, you know, I think the reality is that, that these terms,
terms around the level of the crisis that we're seeing on old growth are coming into the public sphere because we've never been in this situation before. Um, there's already places in the province where there is no more old growth. And in a few years, you know, of, of logging continuing the way it is right now, there won't be. And we'll be having these same discussions about impacts on jobs and communities, but without the opportunity to protect forest ecosystems that we need for our communities. Tegan, let me ask you about um, let me ask you about First Nations involvement in in logging, and, and Bill was just touching on this. There's a, a process now where this plan will be put in front of First Nations in, in British Columbia for their input. Lots of First Nations in BC are involved in the in the logging industry. Uh, like if you have a if you have an Indigenous First Nation in BC that says, "Look, we want to continue to employ our people. We want to continue to have revenue for our communities, and we're going to keep logging in these old growth forests." Do you think they should First Nations should get the final word on that, or should that be overruled? I think the province has a, you know, shown, and they've shown with this process as well, I will agree. I do not think that a 30-day period uh, for consultation is anywhere near good enough, and they clearly the province needs to do better at respecting Indigenous sovereignty and Indigenous rights. That is clear. Uh, I do also think, you know, there are hundreds of nations in this province with their territories, they all will have different opinions uh, and you can't lump them all together. And the choice should not be ever between logging and having economic revenue. The province has an obligation uh, to ensure that nations have revenue up front to be able to make these decisions for free prior and informed consent. That's a key part of UNDRIP. And also these deferrals are meant to be, again, temporary. This is not permanent protection. They were meant to go in, as, as per the OSGR, um, the original panel recommendation, to provide space and time for these discussions so that nations wouldn't be rushed, rushed through a process uh, and that we could you know, have actual nation-to-nation okay. nation conversations in this province. So I agree, but that being said, deferrals can go in. And, these, and you know, another option would have been to put in deferrals and have give nations an opportunity to opt out instead of okay. opt in. Okay, Bill. There are 120 First Nations that have timber rights in B.C. Yesterday, this decision by the government will have a billion-dollar impact on their interests. There There are First Nations that recently bought timber licenses in British Columbia in the interior, and they're now seeing that what they paid cash for uh, is now worthless because of this decision by government. Uh, these First Nations, it's an insult. I can't believe this government, which touts so being so sensitive to First Nations' interests, would give them 30 days to address what is a very, very complex and suspect set of maps that they've been mailed okay. by the uh, government. Okay, let me jump it, in. It's let... unbelievable that they would do this. Uh, like, I, I can't believe the minister and, uh, and Premier Horgan would do this uh, without, uh, like, it's a joke. A okay, 30-day me... review process for something of this magnitude is ridiculous. All right, welcome back as we continue talking about the BC old growth logging plan that was announced yesterday by the government. My guests are Bill Dumont, he's a professional forester, Tegan Hansen, forest campaigner with Stand.Earth. The forest industry say they are concerned about this plan, thousands of jobs on the line. This one uh, came up in question period in the legislature yesterday. Here's Liberal MLA Mike DeYoung, former forest minister, 
pressing the minister for details on job losses here. Have a listen. Has the government completed a detailed socioeconomic study on the impact these land use decisions are going to have for British Columbia's forest-dependent communities, forest-dependent families? Will she release it now so that people will know how many mills are going to close and how many thousands of British Columbians are going to lose their jobs. Okay, I was in the B.C. legislature yesterday. Tegan, the, the forest, in, forest industry is warning of 18,000 job losses here. Do you think that's a realistic number? It's really difficult to say. Um, I don't agree that the risk to jobs with deferrals in place is any higher than the risk of doing nothing. Um, as the scientists have been very clear. Old growth is already gone in parts of the province. It will be gone in others in five years, in some others, maybe 10 years. Regardless of whether or not we protect these forests today, we are going to see uh, the need to transition away from old growth logging very, very soon in these places. And so it would be better if we were actually addressing the economic realities of not protecting old growth, which are huge um, in terms of the incredible value they provide for ecosystem services, uh, everything from clean drinking water to heat protection, like from the heat wave we saw this past summer. And so I think Listen, that, that nonsense hang on, hang on, being hang on, debated hang on, hang on. by Kieran and the minister about these, this role of old-growth forests that we have in B.C. being so critical to maintaining our climate is simply eco-nonsense. There is no scientific basis to these claims. It's just more of this rhetoric that we hear about the sky is falling, the earth's going to end if we don't do these things. Let's bring this discussion back into a science-based model. Uh, for example, British Columbia has more certified sustainable forestry operations than anywhere else on earth. We also have more parks, more reserves of old growth than anybody else. We've done a better job globally than anyone. In Canada, we are the leader in terms of preservation of old forests, and globally, we are also the leader. Okay. This suggestion that we have to stop because these things are at risk. I mean, you read the, the language in this, this awful report called Priority Deferrals, an Ecological Approach. Okay, Bill, let me, let, me just inter let me just interrupt you there in the interest of time and give Tegan a chance to respond because we're running out of time. Tegan, go ahead here, please. Yeah, thank you. Like, you know, I'm at a global uh, climate conference right now, and I can say that uh, that is just firmly not true. Um, more than 100 countries this week recognize the need uh, to protect forests as part of a climate solution, an essential part, in fact. These are our best defense and offense to climate catastrophe. Uh, and Canada, despite having many certifications, is still, um, you know, widely regarded as losing this, this kind of fight to, to pretend that it is somehow sustainable to clear-cut Okay. ancient, you know, old-growth forests. And so I think we need to take responsibility on the global stage for our work. Well, I, I want to thank, sorry, to sorry, Bill, I can't let you respond okay. because we're simply out of time. And I know there's lots more to say, but I would love to have you both back to continue the conversation.